This program contains adult content. Is there a God? A big atheist. Really? What, am I an idiot? Come on. But yes, it would be nice if you could throw your sins and your responsibilities on someone else. But it's not true. It looks like far-left lunacy. I don't believe that it's true that religion is moral or ethical. You don't need to follow anybody! It's not human intelligence! If someone doesn't value logical consistency, what logical argument are you going to give them that will demonstrate that they should? I just, I dig this song, man. It's, it's been one of my favorite Halloween songs forever and ever. And I, I, I didn't play it for any of our episodes or at no. the end of any of the episodes this season. And I actually hadn't heard that song. Really? No, I hadn't heard that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I dig it. I dig that song a lot, man. Uh, welcome to the Godless Revolution. Today is Wednesday, October 31st. It's the actual day of Halloween, and yeah. we're recording instead of handing out candy to kids. And getting diabetes. Mm-hmm. We have Tracy printed up a, a sign and just put it on a chair with a bowl of candy sitting on it out at the front door and said something like, take a few and don't be greedy. But we yeah, have but so few trick-or-treaters who come through here. I'm like, did you, put it on, did you put it within frame of the camera so we can see when some shithead comes and takes all of it? And she's like. We have like four or five trick-or-treaters come by. She's like, honestly, if they take the whole fucking thing, I don't care because well, I don't want that sitting around the house for us to eat. So All your neighbors know this is the atheist house. Yeah. You have ungodly candy. They're a little afraid. <laughs> but I, well, and it's, you know, it's a Wednesday and people keep moving Halloween to the weekends, which yeah. isn't, and then they go to the trunk or treats. Yep. And so we don't, we don't get many people going door to door in the neighborhood these days. Uh, Which is kind of sad. Yeah. They need to get their exercise if they're getting that much candy. Well, I like seeing all the cute little kids in their adorable little costumes and stuff. And when I lived in Clearfield, I had a shit ton of trick-or-treaters all the time. Like, it was just a steady, it was like a parade of kids in costumes. Like, I, you know, on Halloween night, I would not even go in the house typically. I'd just sit on the porch because it was just kid after kid after kid. And... But not here. Well, it sounds like Sarah's hiding in the basement tonight. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to avoid kids. Uh, We got costumes for the dogs, too. I'm wearing my my Boston Skullhead t-shirt that Tracy got for us. Boston Scullier? Yeah, something. Something. Um, But this is episode 226, and we've got a great interview with Taylor Grin for you this evening. He's just awesome. I love fucking talking to that guy, man. He's just a font of knowledge, and it's interesting stuff. And he digs researching it, and I like to hear him his thoughts on a bunch of this stuff. So that should be a lot of fun for all of y'all. Uh, what have you been up to for the last week or so? Well, I was uh, just doing video stuff this week and uh, did some video yesterday. Then I was editing it last night. Then Oz decided to go nose the power switch on the surge protector. 
No, bad dog. And then for some reason, I'm still running. Uh, I was had opened the 2018 version of Adobe Premiere instead of the 2019 version. It didn't save anything right, so I lost like three hours of work last night and just went and made a drink and got really frustrated. So then I woke up in the morning and I'm like, okay, Oz. Your dog park time is limited. <laughs> oh man, that sucks. So it's a it's an actual it's a desktop. It's not a laptop that, yeah. that had a battery backup and yeah. You don't. And I don't have like an up system or anything where it's yeah. You, know, you get thirty minutes an to, uninterruptible power supply. Yeah. yeah, I've had those in the past, and like I've I've had, I think I've had two different ones, and. Each time that there was an instance where I actually needed it to work, by the time anything happened, it was old enough that it, it gave me like four or five seconds oh, of power yeah. and then died. And it's like, you worthless piece of fucking shit. Like I spent $200 or whatever on this fucking thing that's been sitting under my desk and I haven't had to use it. And then a time comes that I do need to use it. And, and it's it so old fails. that the battery's fucking worn out. And yeah, it just it's no good at all. So I'm like, fuck it. All right. I won't do that anymore. And now here in the studio, we've got the lap, the nice, yeah, super duper laptop. So if the power goes out, it'll we can we save. Won't, we won't lose everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what else? Anything? That was just just editing yeah. videos and stuff. So we had uh, we we went to Tracy's grandfather's funeral, which uh, it was nice to see everybody. I had had a bunch of family members in town and staying with us and everything. Um, and the service was decent and everything. There was a part of the funeral service at the LDS Ward House where Tracy and I both felt like a, a bit of this guy's speech was added. So mm. uh, Tracy's grandfather, I think he was 95 when he died, uh, served in Air Force in World War II. So he's a bomber? He's a bombing pilot. Yeah. Um, Tracy's Tracy's oldest brother. So Tracy's the oldest kid in the family. And then her, her younger brother, who is the oldest male in the family, being that we're in Utah and most of the family is LDS. Of course, he's since become basically the patriarch of the family. <laughs> uh, but he, he's a good guy. And he gave a wonderful speech about, you know, his grandfather and growing up and being his grandfather's little shadow and that they were, they were really close. And his grandfather was this great loving guy and everything. And I mean, you know, her, her brother isn't religious. I, I think he's probably an apatheist, you know, okay. I think he's, I think he's probably an atheist, but just doesn't really Vocalized, care about it a whole yeah. lot. Um, we've never, we've never had like a deep religious talk or anything, but whenever Tracy and I mention anything about atheism or religion, he's like, oh yeah, that, you know, religion is dumb and whatever. <laughs> um, of course he grew up LDS, so. Whatever. So we're, we're sitting and so her, her brother's speech was just really, really good. Like, I mean, like moved everybody. To, it was funny. It had people crying. It was just a great, great speech. And then one of Tracy's uncles uh, got up there and started talking and said that he was reading. Oh, so before, before I switch tracks here, her brother's speech at one point in the speech, he said, um, no shit. This wasn't even during the speech. I'm getting things confused. So it was just while we were sitting around the house talking one day and uh, Tracy's brother, Brian was saying that one of the last times that he talked to his grandfather on the phone was, uh, Brian is a, a big mucky muck sales guy for a 
IT-ish company. And so he does a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. And he was in Germany. I'm trying to remember the name of the town that he was in. Shit, I wish I could remember. But he, so he called his grandfather from whatever town he was in in Germany and said, hey, grandpa, guess where I am? And his, of course, you know, grandpa says, oh, I don't know, where are you? And Brian told him the name of the town where he was in. He's like, you know, I'm in this town in Germany. And he said, it was the only time in my entire life that I've ever heard my LDS grandfather curse at all. (laughs) And all he said was, oh, yeah? Well, how is it now? Because when I left that son of a bitch in place, it was flat. (laughs) (laughs) Because he'd he'd flown a bunch of bombing raids over the town and just leveled the whole fucking thing. And he's still like... If he talks uh, about, you know, the war or anything, like, he just, he fucking, he's all against Nazis and, well, yeah. of course well, you yeah. should be. Yeah, I'm against Nazis too. But, I mean, like, just a seething hatred. <laughs> because, I mean, he flew more than 30 bombing missions and, you know, he's got, he's got this old leather jacket uh, that said life begins at 35 because after you fly... Uh, 35 bombing missions, then you were basically released from having to do that anymore. You could go home, go on, go, go, go home. Teach. Yeah. Yeah. Do whatever else. And so he got his 35 and still flew a bunch more, but, um, yeah, it was just, it was just, I was just kind of funny. Wow. How's, how does it look? Cause when I left that son of a bitch in place and I'm like, okay. So yeah, it's one time you heard him swear, but it's not even like, that's, that's, that's a weird thing to sort of son of a bitch in place. Yeah. I remember I I'd seen a story once. I don't know if it was true, but I hope it was true. Where a guy was landing uh an airliner mm-hmm. in Germany and the guy's like asking the air tower traffic controllers for direction and stuff and they're kind of giving him a hard time. He's like, mm-hmm. "Listen, last time I was here, I was bombing this place. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make it to the ground." <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, so that was, so that was, that was funny. And and like I said, her brother's speech was just awesome. And then her uncle gets up there. One of her older, very, very LDS uncles gets up there and says that, you know, he, he talks for a little while. And then he says, well, I'd like to read a letter from, from Don, uh, you know, that from my dad, Mm -hmm. um, that he wrote back to his parents when he was, you know, over fighting, fighting in the war. And he starts reading the letter and everything. And the part of it was, so he reads, he reads the letter and, and, you know, you can tell that he's reading something that obviously was written before. It's, it's in a language that isn't exactly how he normally speaks. Okay. You know, it's in a different tone, different words used a different cadence. And then he gets to, then he gets to a part and it's right toward the end of the letter. And he throws in and Tracy and I are, almost a hundred percent sure that he just added this and she doesn't know if it was a personal dig at her. Uh, but he just kind of adds in this line that says, you know, well, and I've seen things over here that would make even the most ardent atheist become a true believer. And, and it's like in the 1940s, people didn't really use the word word atheist atheist. anywhere for anything. So, it was, it was, it was pretty clear that he just fucking added this in here and it was, you know, it was a different tone. It was, it was a complete addition to this letter that he mm-hmm. had been reading. And it was so clear 
to, you know, Tracy and I sitting there, like he said that, and we both, you know, exchanged glances and rolled our eyes like, what the fuck is he doing? You know, like he's up there just being a dick. You just wanted to score one with God. Yeah, it was it was a pretty disgusting display, yeah. but the rest of the service was nice. The yeah, and, and you know, visiting with family and everything is always is always fun. I, Tracy's family is just awesome. They're all really good people, apart from the one uncle who said a really yeah. shitty thing at the funeral. It, it would have been funny if Tracy would said, "Can I see that letter? I'd like to read it myself." Yeah, like, oh, this there's a part missing. Where's that part? Yeah, yeah. well, you know, she's she was talking to her mom on the phone about it uh, after the service when we got home, and she's like. You know, when, when he got up there and said that, she's like, I felt personally attacked. Like, it was pretty clear that that wasn't in the letter, that he just added that. And it's like, why would you do that? Unless it's just to attack somebody who's there and you're being a giant fucking dick. Yeah. But, yeah. Other than that, it was great as far as funerals go. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's about all I've got for for the last week or so. The interview with Taylor is awesome. Yeah. Let's, uh, oh, we, we should also s- let people know, huh. uh, that Matt was given the position of a, uh, Maharaj. So he had to go over to India. Oh, right, right, right. And, uh, collect his crown. <laughs> That's right. That's the, why he's not here tonight. The, the two skeptical chaps have recently, yeah, put this, uh, title on him. <laughs> and, and Matt's not here tonight. So we weren't able to talk about it. We'll talk about it next week and perhaps address. What they said in their most recent episode. Well, see how his trip to India was. Oh, was fun. Yeah. You should have a lot to report back. <laughs> Before we get to the interview with Taylor, because it'll just basically close out the show for the most part. We may have some parting words at the end. Um, but I want to be sure that we thank all of our Patreon patrons. We're going to do that up, up front this time so that we can spend more time on the phone with Taylor. Uh, that would be... Alan Firth, Newmania, Christy Kalbach, Gaytheus, Larry Wilson, Savita Kuna. What are you talking about? Where did I go? That is no, it's not. That's Stephen and no. Where the fuck are we? (laughs) We're we're right, right here, right. Yeah, that's oh yeah, Stephen Andrews. (laughs) I jumped. My brain just. I'm just automatically reading names now. You saw S and A, and you're like, I'm just. I don't care what the other letters are. Yeah, <laughs> Stephen Andrews. <laughs> Let them eat kafefe. Two skeptical chaps. Michelle Short. Vanessa. Freethinker215, who, by the way, uh, I have apparently known for quite a while on oh, Facebook. Yeah? I, I just came to this realization when they, he, he tagged me in a post. I actually met him at the Reason Rally a couple okay. of years ago, and he took a picture of my shirt. And he actually sent me a message this morning on Facebook saying, hey, can I... You mind if I send you a friend request? Yeah, Raj. He's a really cool guy. I, it was just like, oh, small world and what a coincidence. And yeah, he said he's been listening to the show for quite a while yeah. and, and has recently become a Patreon patron. Cool. So thank you very much for that. Mm. Uh, Utah Outcasts. Janet Uter. Marius Kotbutrakowski. Wesley Aaron. Andrew Vodapich. Taylor Grin. Angelica Pearson. Jeremy Goodson. Brandy Hamrick. Megan Kennedy. The Foz. Jeff Peterson. Jesse Pointer. Savita Kuna. And <laughs> good one. Good one. <laughs> and the Purple Dragon. <laughs> Thank you all very much. I really appreciate you uh, helping to support the show. Yes. For those of you who currently cannot afford to become Patreon patrons or don't have the means or whatever, Please like the show, share it around, tell your friends about it, whatever. Do other things to help support the show. Send us news stories, contact us. Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways you can get involved if you're digging the show. Uh, but let's get to the interview. Yay.
Hey gang, this is Jack Materko from For Infernal Use Only and the Naked Diner Podcast, and you are listening to The Godless Revolution. There is a man from the land of Uz. Book of Job. Book of Job. Story of God's perfect servant, Job. He prayed every day at dawn with his knees on the ground, his face in the dirt. Slaughtered ten goats, one for each of his children, and burned them at the altar in God's honor. Of all God's soldiers, Job, he was the most loyal. I know the story, Matthew. Oh, then you know what happens next. God murdered all ten of his children in cold blood. Scorched every inch of Job's land, lashed at his body till his skin was covered in bloody welts. God rained shit and misery on the life of his most perfect servant and still. Job would not curse him. You know what I realized? Job was a pussy. Rejoining the Godless Revolution podcast now. Okay, on the line we have the always awesome Mr. Taylor Grin, who is a political wonk, recently finished school, and we're looking forward to having him on the show much more often now that he won't be so busy doing other things. How you doing, Taylor? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I have four eyes now. Yeah. I'm getting fucking old, man. Everything's, I'm just breaking down and falling apart. He's, he's hit no, the, I, he's, I feel he's, yeah, he's getting close to his expiration. For so long that, <laughs> that apparently Sandra says from time to time, my left eye starts to wander, um, which I'm not a fan of. <laughs> she accusing you so. of having a wandering eye? Uh, also, yes. Um, <laughs> no, I, I just need glasses. I have trouble uh, focusing. Uh, otherwise, and I'm really bad at wearing them. Oh, yeah. So I feel you. So do you have prescription yeah. glasses and you just don't wear them as often as you should? Just for reading. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. don't wear them anywhere close to as often as I should. Um, so, yeah, I feel you. And you've got um, what the like reading and colorblindness glasses, don't you? Well, yeah, so I've got the the colorblindness sunglasses, and now I have some glasses that I should use while working at the computer, and then I have a separate pair of glasses that I should wear basically <laughs> all of the time that are progressive lenses, so like f- to allow me to see things far away more clearly and close up, and then just uh, normal everyday looking around yeah. vision, I guess. But so I've got like, I've, I'm having to learn to constantly like point my nose at what I want to look at. Otherwise everything's like all warped and fucking weird looking. You're going to need a fanny pack soon. <laughs> all, all your glasses in there and then all your prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. My band-aids. You, you seem really intelligently designed, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was one of my. I think I made a post something along those lines, like, "Oh yeah, you know my my vision's falling apart. I cracked a crown on my tooth. Yeah. Like, I'm getting all that's fucking some intelligent design there." <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you have been studying in school and what you wrote your thesis on. Yeah. Um, so I did a three year long master's program in what's called intelligence studies, which is kind of a combination of like a, a history and a military science type uh, degree program. Uh, a lot of what I studied was things like case studies uh, of military intelligence, typically going back to like World War One. Um, but my areas, I, I had two primary areas of emphasis. One was uh, propaganda, and then the other area ended up being, to my own surprise, 
um, was domestic violent extremism. And that really came as a result of me writing my thesis, um, which was on a program called the Countering Violent Extremism Task Force, which kind of started in 2011, but really started in 2016 because of bureaucracy. And the idea was to create like an interagency and interacting with non-government organizations like hub for preventing and countering domestic violent extremism or domestic terror. Um, and I was looking at that program's treatment specifically of far right and white supremacist violent extremism and the fact that it really wasn't addressing the problem in any meaningful way. Huh. So all your studies kind of pertain to what happened within the last week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, especially so. Yeah. Um, because the Trump administration announced earlier today that they're actually going to be defunding the counter uh, violent extremism program starting next year. And so currently my brothers are trying to stop me from throwing my uh, thesis in a dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I saw you post that out on Facebook today and I was like, what is going on? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's not terribly surprising. There were rumors that they were going to cancel the program. Um, gosh, in, in mid 2017. And then, um, so there were, about a dozen non-government organizations that were geared towards either um, preventing people from getting extremist ideologies or helping them get out of extremist groups um, if they wanted to leave. And of those dozen or so groups, only one of them was specifically oriented towards a far right or white supremacist ideology. That group was a uh, life after hate. And it's based at, off of a European group called exit and they help uh, white supremacists, you know, neo-Nazi skinheads, whatever, get out of their gangs and start a new life. Um, and that group was one of the, the dozen or so that were being funded. Uh, it was slated to get funded. Uh, and then when the Trump administration took over, one of the very first things that they did was to halt all of the funding for the NGOs for uh, the Countering Violent Extremism Task Force. And then when they reinstated that funding, Life After Hate was the only NGO that did not receive its funding. Do you think so, Bannon has anything to do with that, being his viewpoint at all? Of oh, the stretch. Um, I do. I think Bannon has to do with it. I also think that um, Stephen Miller mm. has has something to do with it. Um, Stephen Miller is also kind of flirting with the alt right and white supremacist views, which is really odd because he's. He's actually ethnically Jewish, and his, I want to say, uncle has actually written a letter um, chastising him uh, publicly. So that's an interesting situation there. Yeah, well, Stephen but, Miller, yeah, Stephen Miller's just kind of a ghoulish fucking turd. It seems like every word out of his mouth just drips with sarcasm if he's talking about showing any bit of compassion to anybody who's not white. <laughs> And, mm -hmm. and and treating other minorities as if they're they're you know their views are of no consequence to him because you know white people are in the majority and are in power so it doesn't really matter what all these other people think. Right, right. Well, and he he looks 
so much like Joseph Goebbels, it, it almost makes me reconsider my stance on reincarnation. Um, it, it, seriously, bring up a couple of photos of the two of them. It's uncanny. Well, um, I mean, we've got the right man in office for that. Oh, gosh. I'm not, man, I'm not. It is. Yeah, it's been a hard couple of weeks. Well, what I mean, I was. Sorry, I interrupted there. Oh, you're good. You're good. Just you know, speaking on the white supremacy side of things, I I had seen a Vice article on it and kind of did my own thinking on it. With that, since Charlottesville, a lot of the alt right, uh, far right, white supremacist groups have kind of went underground, or, or when they've had something going on, they've only had a few dozen people show up. Do you think that's a tactful thing for them right now, waiting for a time to reemerge and reorganize themselves? Or do you think that Charlottesville really damaged them quite a bit? So I, I, think, it's, um, I think it's multiple things that are the cause of that. Um, firstly, I think that Charlottesville probably scared away a lot of the, um, for lack of a better term, less than extremists. So one of the sources I said, uh, cited in my paper was a preliminary psychological review of 500 members of the alt-right. And that review found that about 80% of people who self-identify as alt-right um, are somewhat, uh, uh, well, okay, let me, let me put it this way. 20% of people who self-identify as alt-right score very high in what are called dark triad traits, um, traits such as sociopathy, Machiavellianism, or um, uh, narcissism. Right. Okay. Um, these are considered like the darkest traits that humans have. So if 20% of members of the alt-right score high on those traits, the other 80% don't score quite so high, um, but do score higher than the average person on those traits. Um, and that same study said that they, they believed that the remaining 80% basically functioned as a cover for the 20% who are just a hop, skip and a jump away from extremism. Um, so what I suspect is that when Charlottesville happened, a lot of that 80% uh, realized that they were kind of in over their heads, and it probably deterred them from um, uh, going to any future events. Um, gosh, there's a word I'm looking for. So, you know, in Fight Club, where uh, uh, Marla and the main character realize that they're just going to all the different um support groups not because they have the problem but because they just want to like sit and watch um Uh, it's kind of like that you know they want to go to something because it provides them with identity community and purpose but also just because it's something for them to do it's exciting and after charlottesville that excitement i'm sure went away as the pucker factor showed up um (laughs) and then the other thing i think is that uh there's there's a study that deplatforming works um sites like twitter and Facebook have been kicking off white supremacist and alt-right groups in droves, uh, even Gab, which is like a, a alt-right equivalent of Twitter, yeah. has been getting de-hosted from uh, web services. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, preliminary data shows that like when you de-platform uh, hate groups, when you make it difficult for them to communicate with each other, it actually reduces the overall volume of that kind of hate speech. Uh, largely because they're unable to further recruit um, or, or communicate. You know, if you've lost all your means of finding, finding your hate groups online, you don't know them physically in person, you're never going to find them again. And that gives people exit routes out of those extremist views. 
Sorry for rambling. Oh, oh no, you're, you're good. You're, no, you're great. This is all this is all fantastic information. So it well, and the other the other point of them being able to get together online is that they it's almost like a feeding frenzy. You know, they they'll throw a little blood in the water of making an off color joke, and somebody else comes up with something a little worse, and it's almost like they're. They they test each other and push each other's boundaries to see how fucking horrible they can actually be. Oh yeah, um, well that's that's two different phenomenon uh, phenomena that I actually uh, so I intend to turn my thesis into a book and shift it more toward the alt right than the countering violent extremism program. And one of the chapters I've been trying to work on um, it talks about that specifically. Their digital communication styles um, and the the culture associated with that. And, and those sorts of racist signalings are, uh, have, have a dual function. So on the one hand, they work as what's called a shibboleth. Um, shibboleth is a word that comes from like ancient Hebrew. Um, there's some biblical story where a, a Israel, um, Israel community gets invaded and the two cultures who are at war have the same word, but they pronounce it significantly differently such that like they can't pronounce it the other way. And so when guards would come by or people would come by, they would ask, hey, say this word. And if they couldn't pronounce it correctly, they'd kill them on sight. This actually happened in World War II as well. Um, The Dutch would have certain words that sound significantly different in Dutch, and they would catch German spies by how they pronounced that word. Okay. Um, So that that term is called a shibboleth. and, And in communication science, you can look at it in terms of like, uh, words that otherwise have an innocuous meaning, but said to the right person in the right context is going to signal who they are. You know, one example of this would be like the OK symbol, which is becoming like a white supremacist sign. Um, if you're signing it to somebody who also acknowledges it as a white supremacist sign. Yeah, that um, was when you were when you were speaking, that was the first thing that sprang to my mind was to just chime in and say, oh, like the like the OK symbol is being used by yeah. groups like that now. Yeah, and, and, and so that's it's similar, but not exactly the same as coded language. So, um, for example, rather than using um, the N-word or the, uh, the S-word for Hispanics, um, members of the alt-right have started using the terms Googles and Skypes, respectively, <laughs> um, to still have a slur, but to refer to those communities. And that would be coded language. Um, but not necessarily a shibboleth. Um, it, it depends on context. Uh, but the other thing, the other thing is, um, so going back to that okay symbol, right? Uh, the other phenomenon that I'm looking at is what's called um, strategic irony, uh, where these individuals, so this is really funny because for years I've, I've vocally said that I really hate the phrase, just say it. Because it's, I it's an individual ultimately too. saying, I want to express this viewpoint, but I'm not going to fucking defend it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you see that same kind of stance by members of the alt-right where they will say increasingly racist things. And then the moment that they're called on it, they fall back to a position of, oh, well, I was just trying to be edgy or I was just being sarcastic. Yeah. Or I was using it ironically. Um, or I was just telling a dark joke. Don't you get a joke, man? Um, and so those two forms of digital communication really blend with each other because it creates permissive environments for like hardcore racists to exist under a veil of, um, what is expected. 
expressed to be simulated or ironic racism, and they cloud the communication environment so much it's hard to tell what's what. Yeah, well, and they do that. I've I've noticed, and I'm sure you're well aware of this because you're you're Mister in the know about this kind of thing. But I've noticed that when people get called out on that kind of shit, it's oh well, geez, I was just joking. Can't you take a joke or you know. Um, Fuck, I I just lost the thought. Ryan made me a strong drink before we started recording. <laughs> you this asked evening. me to. <laughs> but no, I've, I've noticed that they're, they're very slippery in the things they say and do. Oh, this, is, this was going to be my point. That, you know, a lot of the time they'll say and do something that, you know, after the fact, when people react to it negatively, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, you're just overreacting. You know, I can't even say anything without you yeah. little snowflakes getting so upset about it. Stop being so PC. And, yeah, and they, they try to use this and they say they're being ironic or that they're just being a little edgier. They're, they're not PC. And it's to get a rise out of people. And as soon as they do, it's, oh, no, well, you know, you guys are just way too serious about this. And you're just, you know, you're looking for excuses to say that I'm a racist. When, you, when they are being a fucking racist racist right yeah yeah and it's it's um i'm trying to find a quote here which is terrible for radio but um i want to say isaac asimov like reflected on um fascists using exactly the same sort of conversational uh strategy like during uh like when like swastika wearing nazis were a thing um uh, if I can find it as as we're discussing things, I'll well, uh, I'll bring it up, and I don't want to be bad for radio. But yeah, oh, no, no, right? Yeah, as right. I say, apparently um, swastika wearing is still acceptable because mothers are dressing their children up as it for Halloween at school, <laughs> or allowing and, their kids, to or do allowing their kids they... to do it, and going, "What's wrong with that?" It was a last minute costume idea. Uh, it should have been a, the last thing you ever thought of to make a costume for. I don't know which is worse, that right. or blackface. They're on a, Oh, mm, man. That's a tough one. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think, I don't think that it's a, um, like, what is worse competition, you know? It's not. I give it a tie. Uh, both really fucking bad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's flavored. Do you want your European racism or your Southern American racism? <laughs> <laughs> and that that actually there was people there so there was a BYU student um last week that went to a party dressed in blackface and was getting punished by the school and people are like why what's the big deal about it it's yeah. nothing there's not a big issue with it it's just it's just halloween what we can't dress up now it's like no you don't understand the social history or the implications Have of you what been living that under meant. a fucking rock for the last 10 fucking years like that's not okay yeah, and it's even if you go, well, I'm just dressing like my black friend. No, like, like how can I display my white privilege any more clearly than dressing up in in blackface for Halloween and then being confused as to why people yeah. are upset with me? Like, if I wanted to dress as Michael Jordan, I would put on a number twenty three Bulls jersey, shave my head, and bounce <laughs> a basketball. I don't need to paint my body black. <laughs> right. Well, and and. So it's important to know, um, so I think there's two kinds of people in that situation. You know, the first is just plain being disingenuous. Uh, they're going through the motions of saying, well, what's the problem? Mm -hmm. Um, and they're, they're just asking questions or jacking off, yeah. um, <laughs> J-A-Q, right? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, the other group of people 
um, I would put in what I call the, um, the John Stewart privilege category. Um, John Stewart has a, a quote that I always butcher when I paraphrase it, but he says, um, when you come from a position of privilege, any form of equality looks like discrimination. Mm-hmm. And, and so you've got folks who, who think they can do literally anything, right? And that, uh, you know, claims of racism um, are invalid against them because they don't believe themselves to be racist. And they can't separate um, doing a racist action from being a racist person, right? Because I think that there are people who operate in an ignorant way and perform an ignorant or a racist action without being like a deep seated racist individual, uh, consciously, mm-hmm. you know, they mm-hmm. might, the sum of their racist actions might consequentially make them a racist person, but they don't wake up in the morning and think, Oh, I hate blacks. Right. Right. Um, they just do enough stupid things that that's the end result. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, like I say, I think that's largely a consequence of their privilege that they've never, They've, they've never even had any of that privilege checked to say, hey, man, that shit's not cool. They've lived their entire lives as this special little person that's put up on a, pest, on a pedestal and, and who can do no wrong. And sure, in their, in their heart of hearts, they may not think, oh, yeah, you know, they, like you said, they may not wake up in the morning and think, oh, I hate black people. But through their, through their actions, it's clear that they may not hate them, but they really don't give a shit about the the particular circumstances that minorities here in the United States and across the world face. Right. Right. And, and then you get, you get people as well who have um, like, you know, Oh, well there's, there's uh, good black people. And then there's, you know, N words, like you've got all yeah. kinds of like, and just a spectrum of different types of racism within America Mm-hmm. Um, and blindness to those different types of racism because of that privilege. Um, and it's, I've learned so goddamn much just trying to research, you know, the alt-right, um, that it's really helped me come to accord with, with, you know, un, unseen internal biases, which is helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. What? This reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've, if you happen to notice the footage or anything recently of, I can't remember who was interviewing her or what the certain circumstances were, but Hillary Clinton was on stage being interviewed by someone and the, the interviewer said, well, what do you think about um, Cory Booker saying, you know, that when they go low, you should kick them in the shins or whatever. And, and Hillary and Hillary Clinton said, actually, that was Eric Holder. And the lady said, oh, right, right. And and Hillary Clinton jokingly said, oh, well, they all look alike. And this is right after she had been making all of these statements about, you know, we mm-hmm. we need to end racism. We need to fight it there, you know, and she's going on and on and on. And then this interviewer asked her that question. And it was clearly a joke, like everybody in the crowd laughed. The interviewer laughed. Hillary Clinton laughed. And there there was a, a guy in one of the Facebook groups that I that I visit semi-frequently who posted this and he's like, Oh, I can't, you know, I can't believe that all of you lefties in here aren't, you know, shitting your pants about this and are, and aren't upset and you're just going to make excuses for her. And he couldn't seem to understand the fucking concept of Hillary Clinton. Wasn't being racist. She was making fun of racists with that comment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and, so that's the unfortunate thing with the digital age is uh, the medium is the message. And so you almost have to keep in mind um, how might my quote 
be taken out of context mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if it simply changes from a video or audio media to a text media. Yeah. Um, I mean, we need a sarcasm mark, you know, uh, among other things, because I can absolutely see like we we all listen to um, like the various Puzzle in a Thunderstorm podcasts, right? Oh, yeah. And, and I can very guys. much see like Eli Bosnick, say, Bosnick making a joke saying like, oh, yeah, they all look alike. And, and right. you know, just, I can see him elbowing, you know, Heath in the ribs as he says it. Um, and we know exactly what he means. Uh, and we know exactly what Hillary meant by that, by that. But there are people who want to read the most disingenuous interpretation of that um, because it confirms their pre-existing beliefs. Yeah, it's motivated uh, reasoning. Conservatism. Yeah. Yeah, it's motivated reasoning that they can look at it and say, ah, oh, see here, this, this right here I can use against this person. Like they'll scour every little bit of everything that person says in order to pick out one little thing that they can try to spin and, and use to their own purposes. Yeah, yeah. I, I was talking about that on the, the talk show I was on earlier today, um, that that the right is more susceptible to that type of thinking, a combination of motivated reasoning, magical thinking, uh, confirmation bias, in-group bias, uh, appeals to authority. It's it's bad, and it's getting worse. Yeah, so I, I still got friends on the yeah. right. They say, yeah, but Benghazi. Right. <laughs> right, which boggles my damn mind because um, we had that uh, we had that special forces mission in Africa early in the Trump administration that went tits oh, up and yeah. uh, you know Turkey, right? Like just yep. just take Turkey, um, you know, and the several political snafus we've had with them. So yeah, it, but I mean, it, uh, hypocrisy means nothing to the right, you know, initially the far right and increasingly the mainstream right. Hi, this is Justin Schieber, formerly of the Reasonable Doubts podcast and currently of Real A Theology, and you are listening to The Godless Revolution. If you know the future, you can't have free will because the future is fixed. There's no period of indeterminacy between now and then where you could change your mind. I might decide I'm going to have coffee tonight after we go out. But I could change my mind in the meantime. I have the freedom to make that choice. So if God is defined as a being with free will, who is omniscient, who knows the future, then that God is a married bachelor, and that God not only does not exist, that God cannot exist. And there are dozens of incompatible properties between God that show that by definition, mathematically, logically, the God you believe in cannot exist. You and the Godless Revolution will be reassimilated in three, two, one. So in, in doing your research, what are some of the things that you ran across that you think m- maybe most people aren't aware of or, or don't think about or haven't realized? Um, I mean, the, the big thing was uh, my starting point, actually, which is that in the time period from the day after 9-11, uh, until the end of 2017 uh, is the data set that I used because the government accountability office did my work for me and collated a bunch of data when they were studying the CVE task force. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time period uh, of the 225 domestic terror attacks, that's terror attacks that did not have any sort of um, foreign involvement, right? Um, of those 225 uh, uh I'm sorry, I gotta, I gotta bring that back. 225 casualties caused by domestic terror attacks. Okay. 
Um, of those 225 casualties, 106 of them were caused by far-right or white supremacist violent extremists. Uh, the other 119 were caused by Islamic violent extremists. Um, that's almost half, right? Yeah. Um, the problem is, and this is what I ended up showing with my analysis, is that um, most people, including researchers, uh, including like intelligence analysts and terror experts, tends to conflate uh, or confuse um, terror attack with mass casualty event. Um, if you if you define a mass casualty event as as three kills or more, um, which which its definition varies in literature mm -hmm. between about three and eight kills anywhere in there. Um, I use the data set of three kills or more to be a mass casualty event. Um, and if you take that to be the case, 75% of all the mass casualty events were caused by um, uh, Islamic violent extremists. Um, and so what I ultimately looked at was uh, something called the salience bias, which is people tend to remember the bigger, more vibrant things and tend to forget the less vibrant things. So given that most of the white supremacist and far-right terror attacks only had one or two victims, whereas uh, most of the casualties caused by the uh, Islamic uh, terror attacks had a high kill count of victims, people tend to perceive Islamic violent extremism as being more dangerous than it is relative to far-right and white supremacist terror attacks, which have almost the same kill count in some. Right, because we, we've had an Islamic attack on New York City where they took the Twin Towers down. Mm -hmm. And of course, no, mm -hmm. no racist or far-right ideologue has blown up a building. Oh, no, wait, that's, that's not entirely true. No. 19, <laughs> I've, I've right, been to right. Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> Is that 94? Yeah, well, and, and the crazy thing about that, so I've been reading this book called Alt America, mm -hmm. um, which is a really good um, kind of history to present of the like early 1990s anti-government and white supremacist movements and how they evolved slowly into the contemporary uh, sovereign citizen and alt-right movements. Yeah. Um, and one of the, it's like chapter two or three talks a lot about the Oklahoma city bombings and all the people associated with that. Cause it's like Forrest Gump with like, anti-government loons like there's three or four people who are super prominent all through the 90s and um you know touched everything from waco to oklahoma city bombing like they all knew each other um but the funny thing is is that um after the oklahoma city bombing happened and for the three days it took in between the bombing and finding timothy mcveigh um most people especially on the right even rush limbaugh who had a radio show back then uh, were asking whether or not it was an Islamic terror attack. And even after Timothy McVeigh was arrested, um, they were making initially claims of false flag attacks. And this is in the 90s. Well, yeah, so well, cause, we're not experiencing anything new. Yeah, well, because the Oklahoma City bombing was really close in time to the first bombing at the World Trade Center, wasn't it? If I remember correctly? Um, there were a few years in between. I think... Uh, World Trade Center one was uh, 1993. I thought Oklahoma City was 96, and then 9/11 was 2001, if I recall. Yeah, that's why I just wondered if if having the first uh, Islamic terror attack on the World Trade Center kind of had that in their heads at that time frame, saying, "Oh, we well, got attacked two years ago. They tried to take down the World Trade Centers. They're trying to do it again." Uh, if, if that yeah, mentality I mean, would possible. have been there, yeah, that'd be a big priming event, salient bias. So. 
Yeah, it looks like um, the Oklahoma City then, bombing. Then you was... would think, like, why didn't people snap to 9-11 thinking, uh, well, hey, after, after Oklahoma City, what, what if it was, you know, white supremacists instead of Islamic extremists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, but that didn't happen. No. Well, and we see that with just about every attack. It, you know, even when it comes out that it was somebody on the right, and and it fucking it, it bothers me to no end that anytime there's an attack on, you know, what conservatives or people on the far right view as a progressive thing or a liberal thing or a godless thing, you know, if it's if it's somebody goes into a Planned Parenthood and and starts shooting or you know, somebody goes into a pizzeria and starts shooting yeah. or somebody, you know, plants a bomb in a building or somebody starts mailing bombs to prominent lefties. It's always that it's a false flag thing or it's an Islamist thing. They're, they are never, ever, ever looking for it to be somebody on their own side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, party of responsibility, right? <laughs> well, or even the other one where I think it might've been Rush Limbaugh who was saying that, uh, Jews are were attacking their own synagogues to make it look like there's a, a large amount of anti-Semitism out there. Saying they're attacking their own to get this narrative out there that they're right wing, that they're, you know. Yeah, well, it's, it's conspiratorial thinking that borders on, on um, you know, clinical paranoia. Um, and, and given the, the, I'm not a psychologist, right, but there's a considerable number of individuals um, hang me because I'll never use this phrase again, but on both sides, you know, when you get to people who are at the extreme far left and far right, yeah. um, you've got higher rates of psychological issues, right? Um, and, and one of the ones you see on the far right, especially with the anti-government type folks, is, is almost clinical level paranoia, uh, including delusions of, of power, right? Um, you know, there's some one world government, new world order, you know, black helicopters, weather control, chemtrails, all that shit, right? Which a lot of that has gone away. You know, we, we had the um, the scare from, uh, what was it, Jade, not Jade Helm? Jade, it was Jade uh, Helm, Jade Helm yeah. which was completely stupid. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, they, they were I doing mean, operations I, I on the base so I work at. I got Bundy, right? Or yeah. wait, you guys are from Utah. So, you know, I grew up in St. George, Utah, right? Yeah. Clyde and Bundy was 40 minute drive away from where I grew up. Um, I'm very familiar with people like him. I have friends right now who mourn Lavoy Finicum. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and, and they were anti-government, like wackadoons, like yeah. they were crazy people. Um, yeah. And, and so those people you can't fix, you know, ultimately at the end of any conversation, like the one that we're having, the, the final tone is going to be, what the hell can we do about it? Right. And for some people there's stuff, you know, there's an answer to that question, or at least it is an answerable question, but for some folks, uh, there literally is no way to fix them. Yeah. Well, you had, you had mentioned yeah. the, the, the sovereign citizens earlier, which, you know, Lavoy Finnegan and them, I'm pretty sure prescribed to that uh way of thinking but mm -hmm. i i was i was torturing myself by going down the rabbit hole on youtube about a month ago and watched a good four hours of nothing but sovereign citizen videos <laughs> why would you do that to yourself i've researched this shit i wrote a 60 page thesis and i didn't do that man because i was at work and when i'm bored at work i go down crazy crazy rabbit holes 
But the one thing I I, I I noticed, and it might be prevalent on the right uh, wing extremist side of it too, is there were the people that were the most fervent uh, sovereign citizens. It was very much a religious thing to them. A lot of them, mm-hmm. a lot of them would make the reference to saying. I, God is my only master and ruler, and he says I can do this. I don't follow your laws. I follow God's laws, and God's laws trump your laws and all that kind of stuff. And I wonder if, being the godless revolution, if the religion side of Mm -hmm. it is a big, I don't know, precursor to them having these ideologies. So I think it can be, um, but I think it's it's accidental. Um, and, And so, like, you guys know me. I'm, I am just as strident as an atheist as, as both of y'all. Um, but I actually have started to take this tenor that um, religion is a convenient outlet as opposed to the prime mover of that kind of behavior. Um, there's a researcher, his name is Jonathan Haidt, uh, and he came up with moral foundation theory. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind where he gets into... Um, the five common uh, moral foundations around which people tend to derive uh, what they believe to be a a moral set of rules, right? Uh, With liberals, they tend to revolve around two, prevention of harm and uh, fairness. And with conservatives, they tend to revolve around um, authority, purity, and tradition, right? Um, and so if I take that research and if I also take the um, proposed model of like what people tend to need, which is uh, purpose, community and identity. Right. Um, religion really easily fills that gap. Right. Okay, religion yeah. very easily gives you a sense of community, identity and purpose. Um, and it, it fits really well into the tradition or purity moral foundations. And so I think the fact that religion as a, as a meme and as a set of memes has constructed itself very successfully over six to 8,000 years um, to fulfill those critical elements of the human psyche um, and that conservatives tend to be drawn to it, I think that it's just the most natural uh, or, or like the lowest point for the water to pool, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. 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 And I, I completely agree with you. I, you know, I've waffled back and forth on this over the years and I think ultimately religion is harmful, I, I, but I don't think that all of the world's problems stem from religion. I think religion exacerbates existing problems. It provides people a good excuse to express the hatred that they have for people they view as other, right? When, when mm-hmm. you join a religion and you are told from the pulpit and from the Bible that is, you know, purportedly the inspired word of God that you need to hate certain types of people. You need to hate certain actions. And this is something that they've felt their entire lives. They identify with it even more strongly, and it provides a framework and a support system for them to to express this and then be able to say, well, it's not just my thoughts and, and feelings on this. God also agrees with me. God is the one who, who has been teaching this for millennia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it's so, and this is what's mind boggling to me um, is it, it, if you read the Quran with a clear set of eyes, it's really hard to see it as being, less racist than the, uh, or less anti-Semitic than the protocols of the elders of Zion, 
You know, it's, it's riddled with anti-Judaic uh, statements. And yet, um, after the attack on the synagogue this weekend, um, Muslim Americans pooled together a fund that paid for all of the funerals of the victims. Yeah, I saw that. So, you know, uh, is it is it reformation? You know, is it secularism that that can turn religion into a good thing or, or re-co-opt that social structure into something that's less harmful or less prone to being abused? Um, you know, I think that's a question for somebody who's more of a specialist than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely I agree with you. You know, one of the one of the areas I've been trying to study a little bit better is um, Christian identity movements, which is basically. Christianity really emphasizing the blood libel parts of historic Christianity. Um, it's anti-Judaic Christianity is really what it is. Um, or Nazism plus Jesus. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's awful stuff and it's driven by religion, but I also think it's, it's still ultimately driven by that identity community purpose. Um, and that religion is, is convenient. Yeah. 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 Well, certainly. And and I think nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So I don't know, maybe it's just my more cynical side peeking out from behind the bushes, but, you know, and I think it's wonderful that, you know, Muslims band together and helped pay for the funerals of, of the people who were murdered in Pittsburgh. I wonder though, how much of that, you know, stems from, or, or is a direct cause, um, or or a direct product of Muslims being so denigrated here in the United States. And, you know, that the Muslim community here in the United States can look and see much as the Mormons have done here in Utah, you know, Mormons were chased across the country and persecuted and they finally arrived here. And when I tell people that I'm an atheist here in Utah, they're like, Oh, that's gotta be really rough because there's so many Mormons. And really it's not, I think it would be much more difficult for me to be, an outspoken atheist somewhere in the Bible belt than yeah. it is here in Utah with even with, you know, a single monolithic predominant faith here in the state that you don't find in most other states that it's much easier for me to be an atheist here because Mormons recognize that they've been historically persecuted and, and, you know, had their rights stripped and were chased across the country and were treated really, really poorly for a very long time. And so they have that, that history and that knowledge that, you know, it, it not only could happen to them, but it has happened to them in the past. And so it's much harder for them to treat others the way that they were treated previously. And so I wonder how much of, you know, this, this warm kumbaya thing with, with, you know, help in paying for the funerals stems from that type of, of thinking or that type of awareness that, Hey, yeah, we, you know, not only should we not be shitbags, we but we should be better human beings and help those people in need because it very easily could have been us on the other end of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Um, but on the other hand, like, it's hard for me to um, dismiss that as being a valid way to come to being more um, pluralistic because that's that's pretty much the same path that I was on. You know, I think I talked about this the last time I was on your show is that I mean, when I was in high school, my bill in student Congress for, for speech and debate was build a wall to port the Mexicans. You know, it wasn't yeah. until I had uh, uh, a black roommate when I went through a military school that I started to really undo a lot of racist viewpoints. It was that exposure. Mm-hmm. It was being a minority, 
having been raised Mormon, I didn't feel like I was Mormon at that age, but, um, you know, having been raised Mormon and being thrust into the Bible Belt, realizing how much of a minority I was, interacting with other minority religion individuals, uh, helped pull me out of the viewpoints that I had at that point, uh, you know, living on a steady diet of um, Shal Malkin and, and uh, Rush Limbaugh and um, oh, that skinny God. bitch, Ann Coulter. There we <laughs> go. Like, um, <laughs> did, did you grow up in a, was it a smaller town that you grew up in? Cause I know you grew up near St. George. I don't know if you were in St. George. No, I was in St. George. I mean, if you okay. know, Bloomington, like I was in Bloomington, St. George, but it's still St. George. Okay. Um, it's just that I was exposed to an extremely high volume yeah. of, um, extreme right viewpoints. You know, I mean, literally by the time I was hitting puberty, I had already read multiple books from Michelle Malkin, Dan Savage, um, wait, Dan Savage, Michael Savage. That seems out of character uh, for somebody uh, on the right. Coulter, Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, you know, like I had been uh, just in, injected with those viewpoints. And, and the thing is, is when you lack the rationality or filter of an adult, you know, they use veiled language to, to treat non-white, non-Christians as, as subhuman. But when you're, you know, 12, 13 years old and you read this stuff and you don't know how to use the subtext that they use, you just end up a racist. Yeah. Um, and I had very proto-fascist views up until I was about 16, 17. Um, you were on your yeah. way to being a proud boy. I, yes, I was. <laughs> like Literally, as, as I look at the recruitment styles and the, um, like the messaging and especially the more insidious shit like um, contemporary pseudoscience that, that's eugenics, you know, the, mm -hmm. um, oh gosh, who's that guy, Charles Murray, that, uh, um, oh yeah, I'm talking about Sam Harris has been kind of backing up lately the, the difference in, in genetics between races and IQ and that kind right, of thing. Like yeah. that would have been highly persuasive to me 15 yeah. years ago. Um, but luckily, I got exposed to a broad variety of people. I got my ass kicked trying to run my um, build-a-wall bill in student congress. And I went to a liberal arts school where I interacted with a whole lot of people and took some philosophy classes. We're glad to have you on this side. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> um, yeah, it's bad. Um, I've, I've made the joke that, like, if I was less scrupulous, um, then I would be a mega pastor and make a shit ton of money. Oh. And if I was more evil, I would be um, probably a more successful uh, uh, Richard Spencer. Um, <laughs> I am lucky. I'm very lucky that I've had the experiences I've had. Well, and I think the rest of the world is too. So how do we... <sighs> How how do we change the hearts and minds of these kinds of people? Is it just through empathetic dialogue? Um, no, it's not just through empathetic dialogue. Um, that's part of it. Um, and it's honestly not as much something you or I can do, um, frankly, because we're white, right? Mm. Um, I think that a big part of it is going to be um, non-white folk interacting with racist white folk um, because it exposes them to something they didn't expect. 
Um, and I, I can't really speak for that because I, I don't belong to any of those groups. But that's my inkling um, because of the profound impact that interacting with non-white people had on me when I was that age. Um, well, that uh, I, I need to have a dialogue with someone yeah, on that. There was, a, I can't remember if he was a preacher or not. I thought he was a preacher. The African-American preacher who befriended the uh, KKK and got a lot of them to turn their robes into him. And now he's like, he's proud to have a collection of KKK, you know, knights and wizards and grand dragon robes because he said, I talked to these guys. I sat down with them. I became their friends. And guess what? They're no longer part of the KKK. And they turned their robes into me, a black man. Yeah, I think absolutely being exposed to different groups is is something that absolutely helps people get a better understanding of people they view as other and different and wrong or bad or whatever because then they can see them for who they actually are. They're not the mm-hmm. they're not the straw man version of of a bad person that this person has built up in their mind or has had indoctrinated to them for their entire life. But I also think that it's people within that person's, you know, self-identified tribe, you know, if it's it takes people within that person's inner circle or even, you know, slightly extended circle to call them out on specific things that they hear them say and do and say, "Hey man, that shit isn't okay." I think I think that also has a huge impact when they realize that even people within their own self-identified tribe find their views distasteful. I think that mm-hmm. sometimes can even have an even bigger impact on them to go, well, wait, I, you know, I, this, this, these are my people and I'm pissing them off. Like yeah. I've, I'm fucking up. I need to figure out what is going yeah, on. Yeah. You want the acceptance from your tribe. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so I want to put, in fact, I'm going to make a note to myself because earlier I said, I think it's a multifaceted solution that needs to take place. Um, so I want to respond to that, but I also need to make a note because there's two other things I think are the solution. Um, deplatforming and then creating an alternate way to have identity, community, and purpose. Um, so the thing is with directly addressing someone from within their tribe um, is that from my research, you've got to do it the right way mm-hmm. or else you're just going to make it worse. Um, so this comes from a couple of different avenues of research. I've looked at some of the, um, Oh God, what's it called? I think it's PSYCOP is the name of the organization. It's like a skeptical organization in the U S mm-hmm. um, and they did some research on why people tend not to believe in global warming. Mm-hmm. And it ultimately, ultimately comes to this like snapback effect where if you give a person too much data against their position, it actually makes them like uh, uh, tighten up even harder on their original stance. Um, the easier way to explain it is um, if you're like me and you were raised on Aesop's fables, right? There's the story of the North wind and the sun. And then the story, they see a man walking down the road um, and he's wearing this cloak, right? And so the North wind says, I bet I could blow that cloak right off his back. And the sun says, all right, sure. I'll take that bet. And the North wind blows and blows. And no matter how hard he blows, the man just holds his cloak tighter. And then when the sun shines, uh, the man removes his cloak because it's too warm, right? And it's, it's a children's story. Um, But the point is that, like, in some cases, just being an example may be better than than outright uh, conflicting with someone. Um, But additionally, so here's where my other piece of research comes into play. Um, As I was studying moral foundation theory, I've read a few studies that have shown that if you engage an individual um, 
in a moral foundation other than the moral foundation that they hold valuable, um, they, you're not going to persuade them at all, right? So let's say that you're a liberal and that you primarily care about fairness, right? So the reason why, or, you know, we'll not do fairness. This example is easier if I do uh, prevention of harm, right? So a liberal thinks um, these illegal immigrants are coming from countries uh, like the Honduras where it is a crime-ridden hellhole, right? Like this is the end, end result of the worst possible version of libertarianism where people have armed guards at their brick-walled compounds and they're fleeing these zones, right? And I care about these people and I want to bring them into a better place, right? Meanwhile, you've got the conservative and their value might be purity and they think, well, their culture is different than mine and I think they're bringing disease and I think they're bringing crime and I don't want these people mixed with my people, right? So these two individuals are, are hypothetical liberal and conservative value different things. And so if the liberal comes at the conservative and says, but you need to care about these people, or if the conservative comes at the liberal and says, you need to be afraid of these people, not only is neither person going to persuade each other at all, but they're just going to make the other person dig deeper into their stance. And research shows two funny things, right? The first is that if you try to use the other person's moral foundation language to get them to change their policy stance, but not necessarily their political position, then you are significantly more successful in causing the person to change their behavior. So the liberal might say to the conservative, I agree with you. It's important that we make sure that criminals don't come into the U.S., which is why we need to bolster our immigration system so that we have an accurate vetting system. But we also need to give it the resources it needs. We only gave out 2,500 green cards last year. That's not enough with the amount of people that are coming through. So let's fund the program so it works better. They can follow the law more easily. And the people who deserve to come here can come here. That's going to persuade the conservative. Um, conversely, though, the other research I've seen is that um, people don't fucking do that. Um, most people, <laughs> even when told to do that, will immediately snap back and trying to appeal to their own moral foundational values as opposed to their person they're trying to persuade. And that's something we need to do. That's one of the things that we need to do if we're going to be from inside the tribe talking to you know, racists and trying to convince them otherwise is we can't do it on appeals of, of prevention of harm or fairness. We can't do it. We've got to speak their moral foundation language, in my opinion. And, and that's part of the multifaceted approach I think we need to do to, to engage with these people. No, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I have, there are certain people that I've tried to maintain relationships with, some of my conservative friends that, you know, when we aren't, when we aren't talking about politics or religion, we get along famously, you know, they're, they're fun to be around, they're, they're funny, they're engaging, they're compassionate, they're caring, but it's about people with whom they personally identify. Anybody that they view as other is just automatically a piece of shit. And mm -hmm. I've, I've noticed that when I, when I talk or visit with those friends or relatives or whomever it may be, that if we start straying into the areas of politics or religion or anything that we disagree about with, they, they just shut down. They won't even engage. You can't like, they won't, they're, they're afraid to even have a conversation about it. And yeah. I, and I don't know what to do in cases like that other than just 
decide, okay, well, do I want this person to change their mind or do I want to maintain a relationship with them? Yeah. <laughs> because it seems like for a lot of people, I can't have it both ways. Yeah. Well, I think in that, in that case, if you've got someone where they shut down, um, you know, you, you've given the idea, I've got to write this down, is that maybe the appropriate way to do it is to learn things from therapy, right? If you've got somebody in therapy um, who won't even open up to you to start the therapeutic healing process, then the first thing you really need to do is give them an opportunity to express themselves and then reflect back at them what they're expressing, you know, or just be a prominent, you know, in, in our case, uh, be a prominent example of what the other side looks like. Um, you know, one of the things that I've seen as an atheist interacting with a lot of very religious individuals, um, both in the Midwest and in the military, is that I've had people who interact with me and then go on to say, like, I didn't think you were an atheist because of how you act, right? Yeah. Um, because they didn't think an atheist could be a good person. Right. Um, and that changes minds. You know, they go on to the next atheist they, they meet or the next person they have a conversation with about atheists. And they say, well, you know, actually, I know an atheist. He's not so bad. Yeah. Um, so that might be the starting point with those kinds of conversations. Hi, this is Megan Kennedy. I'm a speaker with the Satanic Temple. You can find me on Twitter at Six Moments, and you're listening to The Godless Revolution. America is waking up to the menace of Antifa. A dangerous, violent group. The ultimate irony of this movement, which styles itself as anti-fascist, is it is itself fascistic. They are people who are getting off on destroying other people's property. I, I think they're total thugs. Radical, leftist, Antifa thugs. We should also urge everyone to consider uh, pressing this idea of declaring Antifa a terrorist organization. They've got clubs and they've got everything. Antifa! Rejoining the Godless Revolution podcast now. I go through different periods where I'm, I'm really pissed off and I'm like, fuck you, burn it all down, you're a piece of shit, you're <laughs> stupid, why would you even think that? I can't believe how dumb you are. And then other times when it's like, oh, well... You know, I, I, I'm not quite sure why you would think that way. Can you explain how you came to that conclusion? You know, trying to use the Socratic method. And, and there are some people that I've tried every method I can think of to get them to even move an inch. And it's just, it, it's, it's impossible. And consequently, yeah, well, there, there are people in my life who I just haven't associated with much at all for several years now because they're, because I've noticed this thing with, with conservatives in particular, like I know everybody's guilty of it, right? Where you, you say something related to politics or religion, because that's just, that's a part of you. It's what you think. And it slips out sometimes, right? You can't be your full authentic self with some people, but every now and then something will, will slip out. Like I'll be hanging around with a bunch of family members and, you know, let's say it's early October and it just happens to be a chilly evening. And this is, this is an example of one of these instances for my life. But, you know, hanging out with family members and, and it's early fall, but it's unseasonably cold just that day. And so we're sitting around a fire and one of my conservative dipshit fucking relatives says, oh, yeah, that funny, that global warming thing, huh? <laughs> and it's like they, mm -hmm. they, they have to it, it feels like they have to inject their political or religious views into every fucking conversation like they can't not do it. Like I, you know, for me, it's, it's a matter of like, 
I just I I don't talk about that kind of stuff because I know that it makes them uncomfortable. And it's almost like I, I can't tell if they're doing it as a personal dig at me because they know I disagree with them or if it's just something that they say among their their other other people in their clan or their tribe that it's perfectly okay to say that. And maybe it's a combination of the two, but it's, you know, when I get with my liberal friends and we happen to have, you know, a conservative friend who's there and, and they're in the minority in our group of friends, like none of my liberal friends will say jack shit about politics or religion. It's always the conservative person. And maybe it's my personal bias that I just <laughs> notice it this way, but it seems to me at least that the conservative is mm -hmm. always the one who brings it up because they just can't fucking help themselves. They've got to be a fucking dick about it. Well, well and so I, I think there actually is an explanation for this. Um, so I assume that it's not just you and this friend, right? Uh, you, what, I, why, are, are, are you and this friend the only two people in the room? No, no. Okay. So, so when I, when I talk about the moral foundation theory, right, one of those groups is in-group loyalty, right? One of the three primary foundations that conservatives tend to have that in-group loyalty. Well, one of the things psychologists know is that one of the best ways to improve or rebuff in-group loyalty is by pointing out the difference between the in-group and the out-group. And, and so what you're observing is is virtue signaling at your expense you know, when he makes a comment like that it's not targeted at you damn it's targeted at the liberal who is not part of the in-group of conservatives and by virtue signaling that conservative stance um that causes the in-group to feel bolstered because they are different from you the out group the liberal is is my assessment of that kind of interaction yeah, I can see that. And and of course this comes from, you know, somebody on the conservative or right wing side of the aisle that, you know, decries all of that virtue signaling they see from those from those communist lefties. Yeah. Yeah. Well virtue signaling as a word is a neutral thing. Virtue signaling has become a shibboleth callback mm. for people on the far right to, you know, mock the libs, right? Yeah. Um and, and the thing is that the reason why you see that your liberal friends tend not to do that as much as your conservative friends or at all is because remember, liberals tend not to value the in-group loyalty moral foundation. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And it confirms my personal bias. So I'll run with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, and there we go. That's, that's it. That's a wrap. <laughs> well, um, I, I had something on my head. Now I just got to no, get it out. No, you don't. Yeah. Freckles, maybe. Well, I got a little bit of hair left up there. <laughs> no hair, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Earlier when you were talking about like people not wanting other groups to come to the U.S. saying, well, they won't uh, assimilate kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I've heard, I've had people I work with say the same thing. Well, if they come here, they got to assimilate. And I've asked them, what do you mean by they have to assimilate? It's like, well, they got to, you know, become part of our culture. And I was like, well, what is our culture? They got to start listening to Toby mm -hmm. Keith. Well, that's the thing is like, they will list things. Being white and Christian. Yeah, they'll list things they do. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, be white, speak English impeccably, and be Christian. Pretty yeah. much. Well, speak English impeccably is kind of a, they might be able to well, speak it better. Know. Get her done. <laughs> yeah. But like, like, I'll say like, do you think, do they have to celebrate Christmas? 
You know, is that an American thing? Do they have to celebrate the 4th of July? Is that an American thing? Because I don't celebrate either, really. I'm like, I could give or take. I'm like, I might just go order a pizza on Christmas because I don't really celebrate it. I don't really celebrate the 4th of July by going and blowing shit up like everyone else does. Mm. So have I not assimilated to the country I live in? Do I have to act a certain way in order to be considered an American citizen? Or are they allowed to come here and eat their Mexican food, which... If they came here, I guarantee Taco Bell would not be rated the number one fucking Mexican restaurant in the United States. Oh, God. Oh. But what so, is it? So if I may, I, I'm, after you're done, I have a story I need to tell you because, just, oh, my God. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, sorry. Um, besides becoming an American citizen and swearing an oath to the country, what other kind of assimilation do they expect them to do? Uh, they don't. So they don't. Um, did the Southerners during the Jim Crow era expect African-Americans to pass the literacy test to vote? Ooh. No, no, that was yeah. why they, that no. was why they, they put it in. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 They, they don't want them to be American. They don't want them to assimilate. They want to create an ambiguous virtue signaling impossible yeah. task so that they fail that task or that standard, because it's not even a real task to accomplish. Yeah. So that they fail at that standard, and then they can become the victim, uh, or sorry, the object of derision. And and as soon as you call them out on that, uh, the conservative that is, um, they're going to do that thing they do where they misdirect or or you know, disingenuously portray their argument because they don't know where to go next because they've run out of Ann Coulter talking point. Well, usually they stick on the Ann Coulter talking point and say, well, I just don't want Sharia law in the U S. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but how do you feel about bombing abortion clinics? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, and I, I really love the way that you present the question because that's a really good Socratic method way of, of making the conservative uncomfortable uh, in order to potentially make them reassess what they believe. Um, I think at the end of the day, depending on how much the person is a true believer, uh, it, it doesn't matter. They're, they're not supposed to assimilate. They're supposed to fail to assimilate so that they can be vilified. Which is usually where I try to run through the numbers and look them up for them and go, see here, this is how long it takes a person to become a citizen. It's much money it costs. I'm like, this person sacrifices a good two to four years of their life of money they could have had to go on a vacation or spend to do something else to be able to afford a home, to do something. And they spend all that money just to become an American citizen. Like, I think they've sacrificed Mm -hmm. and done enough to become a citizen of this country. If they yeah. go through well, that I mean, process, what if you took the citizenship test oh, I would and fail. gave it to everybody in the Bible Belt? Oh, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. most of them would fail it, yeah, easily. So, so brief aside, um, Sandra, for the listeners, my significant other uh, and I were at a Mexican restaurant uh, a few weeks oh, yeah. back, and um, there's this boomer couple in the booth over next to ours. And we overhear the, the woman boomer of the couple call the cook over to their table. And we're just sitting there. We were talking until we saw the cook come over and I got interested. So I started eavesdropping like I do. <laughs> and the woman says, um, this, uh, 
it was like a chimichanga or a quesarita or something like that. What's this green like, stuff? This I don't understand what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is not what I wanted to order. And and he says, well, what did you order? And she said the the food, right? And he said, no, that's that's what that is. And he opens up the menu for her and he reads off everything. And she's like, well, this is nothing like what I got at Taco Bell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I thought that I watched that cook just die inside <laughs> um, because this is the type of Mexican restaurant where like um, mo- most everybody behind the counter does not speak English. Right. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and the cook also happened to be the owner. So he spoke English and um, he was dying inside. No, ma'am, this is real wow. Mexican food. It's- Taco Bell is not Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it's, it's American. All Sandra and I could do to not laugh our asses off uh, <laughs> for the rest of our meal. <sighs> I, I, I knew that where you, when, once you started going with that, I'm like, they're going to say it's not Taco Bell. <laughs> yep. Yep. I saw it in a while. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned deplatforming as a way to uh, stop an, an increase in violence and and violent rhetoric and basically hate speech and hate actions coming from various uh, white nationalist or supremacist groups um what 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 can we do other than you know and so i i have a bit of an issue with people who you know, there, there's a controversial speaker who's been invited to speak at a university and there are protests and, you know, people call in bomb threats and all of that kind of stuff. Like, I have a problem with that. Like, don't call in bomb threats. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think a, a, a big part of, of how to combat bad speech is with better speech. But I mm-hmm. understand, like, so I guess in my mind, I draw a distinction between, okay, well, has this person been invited somewhere and they're going to be speaking you know, at the behest or at the invitation of whomever invited them. And, and it's mm-hmm. an event that has been planned and paid for is, you know, this ongoing thing. And sure you can show up and protest, but don't call in bomb threats. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, don't try mm-hmm. to disrupt the event, whatever. Versus like, yeah. I just wouldn't extend a platform to those people in the first fucking place. Right. Right. So where, where do you draw the line and where do you think it should be drawn on the, mm-hmm. on that kind of thing? <laughs> Um, so if I can be a giant fucking nerd here for a second, oh sure. Um, most most of the articles published about this use the term deplatforming. Um, I actually think that's a slightly inaccurate term, right? So let's unpack the language. Okay. Um, a platform is typically viewed like colloquial English, right? Um, as a dude or a dudette standing up and speaking in front of other individuals who are receivers of the message, right? They're on their um, soapbox. What I am, say again? Yeah, oh, soapbox. soapbox. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so people use the term deplatforming for that, you know, get rid of their soapbox. Um, the research that I have found is not that per se, right? So there's this other phenomenon uh, within communication science, and, and they're called deliberative enclaves. Um, and, and I'm going to use a couple of examples, right? Like we have on one hand, a deliberative enclave that might be the incel movement, right? You've got a lot of people with extremely twisted fucking views about the nature of 
of gender interaction and the intellect of women and the reasons for why they aren't getting laid, right? And they feed off of each other and they increasingly isolate themselves away from other populations. Same side on the left, you've got the healthy at any size movement, which is largely unfounded in science and does the same thing where they create their own phrases and they, they um, increasingly one up each other in terms of their, their virtue signaling to each other. Uh, in order to form that in-group cohesion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but both of those are examples of, of deliberative enclaves, is the, the communicative term for that enclave for being like a cloistered, um, um, isolated area and deliberative in terms of like deliberation, talking to each other, right? So it's, it's people who talk in an increasingly closed section of the world, right? And, and, pre-internet days, it was fairly difficult for deliberative enclaves to form. You know, you guys um, might remember from like high school that there was probably a nerd group uh, in high school that like nobody else hung out with them. So they all started hanging out with each other and increasingly had their own terms and slang and everything they would use with each other. Yeah. It's almost um, like they de- they the start developing where, like, their own language. Possible. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you there. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I cut in. But it, it's almost like they start developing their own language. Yeah, exactly. And, and so now enter the Internet, right? So let's say that you've got some extremely weird thing that you like talking about. You know, let's take bronies, right? Absent the Internet, bronies would never have been a thing except for a few weird dudes. But it became an entire subculture because those individuals were able to find each other online. Um, and because it's so easy to form a chat room, a Discord channel, a subreddit, right? These individuals can get together and form a microculture oriented around whatever special interest that they have. Um, so the research that I've looked at in terms of deplatforming works, you know, scare quotes around that. What I actually think it should be called is, is deliberative enclave busting works. So in 2015, Reddit... Um, which is like a social network that most of your viewers should know. Um, but it's basically like a forum of sub forums and anybody can create their own sub forum more or less. Well, there were a lot of very hate speech oriented sub forums, subreddits on Reddit mm. um, leading up to about 2015. Um, a, a really prominent one was called fat people hate. And the entire mm. dialogue around fat people hate was literally to say, this person is overweight. Let's mock them, dehumanize them. And even in some cases call for their death. Right. Um, this is bad. So uh, along with other subreddits, including one um, like Coontown, which was basically the same thing with African-Americans, mm, um, these subreddits were, were uh, destroyed. Um, they were taken off the listing. Any sort of clones of those subreddits that the moderators were trying to recreate were deleted. People were banned for attempting to do that. Um, and those subreddits went away. Well, some researchers examined, um, they, they basically used keyword searches across the entire domain of reddit.com and looked for the same sort of language that the people had been using in those subreddits that had been banned, like fat people hate in Coontown, and they applied those sorts of language search terms over the course of the next year. And they found that the amount of the usage, uh, usage of those in-group words, those shibboleths, um, decreased more than would be expected just for those subreddits having gone away. Um, That is, they found that because there was no longer a place for people to meet and talk about those subjects, less people 
engaged in those subjects in the first place never learned that it was okay to hate a certain group like that and never got engaged in that kind of conversation. Um, so for lack of a place to form a deliberative enclave, they lost the ability to recruit and retain membership and less people express those hateful views. Hmm. So, so are you saying that we, that it's probably a better idea to not, you know, to, to try to shut down those types of events? Like, like if somebody yeah. does have, does have a speaking event where they've been invited and whatever, that it is best to try to shut those down. So no, and that's why I draw the distinction between deliberative enclaves and, and deplatforming, right? Or, or a platform, right? That's why I think that it would be more accurate for those news articles covering the study to say deliberative enclave busting works, not deplatforming works, right? If we distinguish between a platform, one person speaking to many, and a deliberative enclave, lots of people speaking in a network, um, let's separate those two, right? Okay. I don't necessarily think that taking away the ability for a person to do a, a speech in public is always the best thing. Um, you know, and, and, and there's nuance in that, right? Like if, if Ben Shapiro wants to give a shitty speech at a university and get a rise out of people, sure. If Ben Shapiro challenges uh, Ocasio-Cortez to a debate and she says, no, go fuck yourself, She's under no obligation to debate him, right? right, right. Um, so I don't think he's entitled to every platform he wants. But I also don't think that people should, like, hunt him down and prevent him from ever having a platform, ever. And, and there's a whole spectrum of behavior in between those two stances, right? Right. Um, always give someone a platform anytime they request it and never give someone a platform, right? There's, there's a spectrum in there. Um, but that's fundamentally different from deliberative enclaves and busting those up. Um, a lot of white supremacists were banned from Twitter. So a white supremacist, uh, or more accurately, alt-right computer programmer developed Gab, which is a Twitter clone. And a lot of alt-right members went to that. Now, this had two effects. One, there's a whole lot less hate speech on Twitter, believe it or not. And two, it gave a new deliberative enclave for even more strident white supremacists mm -hmm. and alt-righters to gather on Gab. Now Gab is getting shut down by the various uh, web hosting services that are hosting it. I think that's a good thing. The more that you can dissolve the Gabs, the forums, uh, you know, Daily Stormer, um, the Discord chat rooms where people are, are recruiting for white supremacy, the more you prevent them from recruiting people in the first place and proliferating their messages. And that's fundamentally different than stopping, say, even Richard Spencer from giving a speech at a university. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And that is something that I hadn't really considered before. Yeah, that they are two separate things. You where you've got one person talking to a group of people versus a group of people talking all, you know, to everybody within the mm -hmm. group. Yeah. And I mean the the thing is is that you can debate Richard Spencer and and you can make Richard Spencer look like an asshole, right? And it's easy to do. Um it's very very difficult to break up the in-group bonds that start to form when the deliberative enclave forms and those people can form their own shibboleths, their own culture, their own uh, sayings. You know, the, the only reason why a group like Proud Boys exists is because of the Internet. You know, break up their ability to communicate, chances are they're going to fall apart the same way the white supremacist groups mm -hmm. in the 1990s fell apart when members started aging out or getting arrested. Yeah.
Yeah, I was happy to see Facebook shut down all of the Proud Boys pages it's- that were out on their out on their platform. Well, I'm sure you heard the episode where I talked about seeing a Proud Boy here in Utah at a fucking Neil deGrasse mm-hmm. Tyson yeah. speaking event of all places. Yeah, yeah. Boggled my mind. <laughs> um, well, and, and so the other thing, I, I know this woman, I'm not going to use her name, um, but she and I have been having discussions because her hobby is to go through Facebook find white supremacists and um, radical members of the alt-right, like people who um, violate Facebook's terms of service Mm -hmm. by way of their racism. Mm -hmm. And then she aggressively reports them. Um, And and I don't know what she does for a living because the amount of time she's able to spend on this. um, I, I see daily status updates from her. Got them. And it's two or three <laughs> profiles or pages or whatever that she's gotten blocked or thrown in Facebook jail for 30 days. Um, and it's great work. And she's now teaching other people to do the same thing, mm. um, to hunt those profiles down and get them taken down. So, yeah, yeah uh, that's per the way earlier question. That's one of the other things that can be done to help break up these um, emerging and growing uh, white supremacist and alt-right cultures. She's a digital hunter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or huntress. super cool. <laughs> I, was, I was very happy to, to informally interview her. I interviewed her for context, not for any content in my uh, thesis. Uh-huh. Um, because that would have been a violation because I didn't go through the, the board. Um, but I didn't need her for content. Um, but she definitely turned me toward a whole lot of different uh, alt-right and white supremacist groups, uh, which is super informative, and I'm really grateful to her. Hey, everybody, it's X from the Utah Outcasts podcast and YouTube channel, and you're listening to The Godless Revolution. Wasn't that lovely? You'll notice there are no babies being baptized today. That's not just for water safety. (laughs) It's because we practice a believer's baptism. And unlike, say, the Catholics who are sprinkling babies all (laughs) willy-nilly, we have a three-week course. Thank you to everybody who has rated the show on iTunes and Stitcher and are following us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. And to all our Patreon patrons, you make the show possible. What have you been doing since you were last on the show? What's new in your life? What do you got going on? What what can you report back to us, and, and what can we look forward to in the future? <laughs> Did you find Pickle Rick? <laughs> Pickle Rick! Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought of that. I just wanted to say Pickle Rick. Oh, man, I love that show. I love how much he hates his caustic fan. Um, <laughs> that makes me happy. Um so I've been super busy. Um, Bear, my co-author with Grin and Barrent, which is currently on hiatus, has been very busy. Um, a lot of stuff I can't talk about, actually, but he has been really busy with his career, and I think that that's about to calm down some. Um, we're due to talk a little bit about what we're going to do next. I'm going to start writing one way or the other. Um, I've got my personal blog that I've been like kind of start of sort of poking at mostly just doing like book reviews and article reviews on the stuff I've been reading because I've got enough peers that are like, how do you know this shit? And I say, ah, you know what? I'm just going to like literally 
link to the major articles I read on any given day and say, here, here's the shit I'm reading. If you want to read it too, here you go. Um, I need to use Goodreads better for that as well, because I've got like a, an entire shelf of books on the alt right now to throw at people's directions. So I'm just trying to find a way to like organize and distribute what I do to learn what I learn and, and put that out there for other people to learn. Well, um, have you ever yeah. listened to uh, George Carlin's Hardcore History? It's not George you know Carlin. What? No, so, George Carlin's media. Um, <laughs> what is it? It's Carlin. It's Dan, Dan yeah, Carlin. Dan Carlin. I said the comedian. Yeah, Dan Carlin, not George yeah. Carlin. He, George Carlin's hardcore history would be totally, totally different. different. True, true. Dan Seven Carlin. Words Are they related? History class. Well, I could see you being able to do what you do if you want to do it more. Well, he doesn't do his more off because he does a ton of research into each one of his episodes. So he might put an mm-hmm. episode out every three months, but some his will be like. Yeah. Like four two parts, you know, two two hours, four parts, so eight hours total on one single subject. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. just him, yeah, talking and laying it all out to make it like he doesn't skip. It's like I'm not going to skip anything over. I'm going to explain this all to you in detail. But he does a really mm-hmm. good job with it. I don't know if you've thought about doing that on a pol- on a political side. As far as if you were well, trying so to do your own podcast, I hadn't thought about doing it in an audio medium. Okay, um, you know, even as I was writing my thesis, I knew that that's not what I was happy with. Um, I was I was kind of limited in the subjects I could do with my thesis. Yeah, um, and so I ended up doing the countering violent extremism, extremism thing as a convenience thing. Um, what I really want to do is write a better book on the alt right and specifically how they communicate because that was my undergraduate focus was communication. Okay. Um, and, and frankly, write a better book than what has been written so far about how they talk and recruit and, and how they exist online. Um, but I was always thinking book, you know, you yeah. probably onto something in terms of doing that in an auto audio medium as well. Um, so yeah, I'm going to have to look into that. Um, as far as what I've been up to, um, mostly that, you know, the last time I was on was what, October. Um, I moved, uh, I moved out to Virginia for a while and I was God, doing some cool been, stuff it's been a at fucking a uh, year, military man. base there for a bit. I'm sorry. Um, I, I just, I just really, yeah, it's been a fucking year, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. <Holy> yeah. Shit. <laughs> Wow, and I'm um, sorry you were saying you you move. I, I just I, I that blew my mind that it's been that long. But I'm sorry you were saying yeah. that you moved and what else? Yeah, no. So I moved. Um, I was doing a job for a little while. Um, that very technical, very boring. Um, like it was something I was good at, but I just hated going to work every day. So I ended up not doing that. I came back and I, I created a um, uh, like a training thing at at my guard unit for a couple of months where I basically helped build their um, like training curriculum uh, for like analysis. And then I basically fucked off of that. I was like, all right, I need to take a break from doing this for a while. Um, And so I'm actually on like a sabbatical from that for the next several months. Um, And I started focusing on my master's thesis. Um, I had a four month period of time where I was like officially allowed to work on it. And I'd been doing research for years, you know, Mm. so it was, Mostly those four months were like, all right, start writing now. Um, and I have spent the last four months writing on that. Um, I completed it September, the, the very end of September, and I get awarded my degree uh, November 15th. Um, I'll officially have a master's degree. And that's 
frankly, that's been my fucking life. Like (laughs) the last four months have just been like work, go home, work on my thesis, pass out, wake up in the middle of the night, sweating, work on my thesis more. And like, somehow survive. Um, <laughs> I, I picked up smoking again for like the last three weeks of working on my thesis. And I went from nothing to a pack a day and then quit again uh, within like a month long period of time. At least it wasn't um, math. <laughs> oh shit. I almost wish it was, man. I would have had more energy. <laughs> but you're, but, uh, you're off, you're yeah, off the no, cancer I mean, It's not super interesting, but I've, I've just been working my ass off and now it's the first time in like five or six years that I'm not working my ass off. And it's kind of nice. Well, congratulations is in order in the first place for achieving Thank your doctorate. You. Masters. Masters. Just go for your doctorate. I want to call you doctor. <laughs> Not yet. No. Oh, man. But if I do, um, I'm starting to get a feel for what I might do. But that's that's a while off. I need to take a fucking break. Okay. <laughs> but thank you. Seriously. No, that's quite an accomplishment, man. I, I, I don't have a master's degree. And it would certainly help with a lot of the things that I do where they're like, oh, yeah, where'd you go to, where'd you go to college? Where'd you get your degree? And I'm like, um... I didn't. I just kind of learned all this stuff, and and I put it to good use. <laughs> I got a third degree burn once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you, so you work on um like networks and that kind of thing, right? Uh, me uh, is my understanding. Well, yes. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Dan. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've I've worn just about every hat in the IT industry that is available. I've done. Networking, I've done security, I've done system administration, network administration, well, I already said networking, uh, programming, mm-hmm. design, database, uh, and... Yeah, there's there's not a fucking thing involved in that that you can learn better in a school than doing it. Yeah. Uh, as long as you're doing it effectively. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it's just that, so. you know, for a shit ton of positions, it's, you know, one of the... One of the requirements is that you have a degree and it doesn't even really matter what your degree is in but you have to have a degree mm-hmm. and so that get get a bullshit degree from a for-profit university check it <laughs> phone it in i mean you, like no joke i know people who work for the government and and the person making the hiring decisions like i know you have the skill set for this job i have to hire someone with a degree go to a fucking for-profit college get a fucking degree and we'll hire you um <laughs> Just, just get the bullshit degree. Yeah, it's I've, easy. I've thought about it, but then I would, I just would feel like I'm throwing money down a toilet for a bullshit degree. That, and then it's, then it's a cost benefit analysis, right? So, how much am I going to spend on a bullshit degree that may get me an incremental increase? I don't know. It's, it's one of those things that I'm yeah. constantly weighing. But well, I, just I haven't mm-hmm. done it. I saw on Vice that you can uh, send in like four grand. Mm-hmm. And they just give you one. Oh yeah, it's completely fake. But you get all your <laughs> grades, your attendance into your classes, and uh, uh, what looks like a pretty authentic uh, diploma. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I'm not saying that. You know, oh. I'm saying like <laughs> well, for profit in your field. <laughs> yeah. in, in your okay, yeah, I guess that's fair. That's fair. But I'm, <laughs> I'm saying like in your field, especially in, in anything computer science, you know, especially like network administration, that kind of thing. Go get your basic cybersecurity degree. You know, um, from like Community College of Utah, right? <laughs> and just like knock it out. You know, you'll ace the shit out of the the coursework, um, 
And then you just have the degree on paper. And if anybody ever asks, you just say, yeah, I finally got it. I've been doing this for 20 years and I wanted to show something on paper. Everyone's going to know. Uh, and it'll check the box for the application. I get you though. Like if you've gotten to the point where you're at like a GS 15 or something like that, like there's really not much higher to go without congressional approval at that point. So fuck it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm corporate a f- way of anything. Yeah. Well, I'm a 14 now and I've gotten away from, you know, I'm, I'm not programming. I'm not coding anymore. I'm not doing networks. I'm a program manager now. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I've, I've kind of reached the stage in my career where I got, a little bit tired of trying to keep up with all of the new shit. <laughs> like, honestly, mm-hmm. like it was just, it yeah. just, it got to where it was like, how many things have I learned and forgotten by now <laughs> that, that I'll never use again. And now I've got to learn something else. And it's like, you know, I, I think I've reached the stage in my career where I'm like, management is more, more my, more my jam now, because then, you know, mm-hmm. like I've got experience in all of the different fields around this, like every, every position that I may have employees for, I know basically what they do and what they have to go through. So it's given me a good, well-rounded understanding of all of the shit that my employees and, and coworkers have to go through. And now I just don't have to learn all of that new shit anymore. Like I can have my employees learn it and just explain it to me. Give me, you know, give me the 10,000 foot view and tell me how that will fit into our process and and improve things. And that's really all I care about these days. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you're the kind of boss I like to have who has gone through the shit, but now knows that other people have to go through the shit and will help them do that. Oh yeah. Right. Good on you. Like that's the career progression. And I, and I fucking, I hate micromanagement and I hate micromanaging people. So I don't do that. And I just, I trust that, you know, you've been in this position for a while now. You obviously should know what's going on. I'm going to trust that, you know, your fucking job. Just let me know what's going on and how I can help you. Let me get all of the bureaucracy and bullshit off of your back. You know, I'll handle the paperwork and dealing with, you know, higher ups and stuff like that. You just go and do your coding. Cause I know you do a great job doing that and, and get that taken care of. I don't want to waste your time having to deal with, you know, re- creating reports for people up above you that, you know, they don't honestly care what you're doing. They just want to show results on paper. So I'll do all of that. You go and do your thing and this will all be better for everybody. I'm, I, I've always envisioned a good boss as being somebody who holds a big umbrella for their employees to keep the, the shit that's raining down from above off of them so that they can just do their thing. And yep. so that's what I've been trying to do. Yeah. Good on you. Good on you. Um, yeah. So what else, <laughs> what else have you got going on? What can we look forward to in the future? Um, so I'm working on that book. Um, I just finished the last of some work I was doing, um, kind of, uh, I'm trying to think if I want to put it freelancing basically for the last few weeks. Um, so now I'm, I'm basically trying to figure out what to do next. Um, I, uh, I, I saved up a bunch of money over the last year and I'm actually like literally not working right now. Um, I, am applying to jobs that I want to have, not that I have to have. And I've given myself the leeway to do that, um, which is nice. Um, I, because I have all this free time, I get to work on my book and reading the shit that I've been putting off reading for the last couple of years because of my degree. Um, I, uh, I actually was just on a talk show. Um, so my old undergraduate advisor, Eric Young, he's a professor of communication at Dixie State University. 
Um, he runs a talk show called Talking Point Live, um, where he talks. Uh, so lately, a lot of politics, but he basically looks at things going on from a communications perspective. You know, how are things being talked about? Um, you know, by what way are they being conveyed? Um, and what's the messaging going on in the political sphere right now or the news sphere right now? Are people making appeals to fear or, um, you know, what have you? Uh, so I was on a couple of episodes of that show. Um, we did a live record earlier today. Um, so very short version is the Internet Research Agency was a propaganda outlet that targeted the U.S. elections in 2016. Mm-hmm. They have a spinoff group called USA Really that does like negative news coverage on the U.S., uh, attempting to look like it's from the U.S., a lot like Russia Today used to do. Um, and a feature article was done on them by a Russian language newspaper, and they took a photo of the um, leader of this organization, Alexander Makovich, in front of a map. Well, some people translated the map and realized it was basically like how they were targeting their political messages against each state in the United States. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah. So I ended up taking that image, validating the translations with a friend of mine that, that knows Russian, um, and then reproducing that entire map uh, in the English language with non-color-coded symbols because they were almost fucking impossible to, to look at, right? And I'm not colorblind, right? Um, and they were still fucking hard. Uh, I think you might remember because I reached out to you and I was like, can you tell these fucking colors apart? And oh, yeah, yeah. Sandra yeah. was like, Taylor, just use symbols. Like, no one's going to see that shit. Just use symbols. So I did. Um so anyway, I did that and I sent it back to the NBC journalist who had posted the thing on Twitter originally. And he ended up like retweeting that out, um, which was super cool. Um, so I went on, on rolling back. I went on this talk show earlier today and we talked about that map and how I did that research and, and what the IRA and uh, uh, USA really are up to and kind of how the Russian propaganda machine works. And then we did a second episode, which is coming out a week from today. Uh, sorry, this airs Whoa. later on. It's going to come out uh, Wednesday, November 7th. Um, and there we talked about a lot of the same stuff that we all just talked about by way of white supremacy and the rise of the alt-right and that kind of thing. Um, so, and, and I look forward to probably doing more episodes on that show from time to time as it's um, relevant to my areas of expertise. And apart from that, just trying to figure out like, what kind of media content do I want to pursue? What kind of job do I want to have? How do I make money doing what I do, um, but actually doing the things I want to do, researching the things I want to research as opposed to just being like, say, an Intel analyst nerd, you know, which is well, some of the stuff I've done over the last few years. I was going to say you can just go become Jack Ryan. No, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> shit. So actually, um, no, here's another thing that happened. So I hurt my back a few years back, right? Um, and it really restricted my mobility. Well, something popped loose back in like August and I'm back to full range of motion, which is like life changing. I struggled to tie my shoes for the last few years. Um, and that's been just like crazy cool. Um, so just no, no Jack Ryan for me anytime soon. Well, your back's better now. So why not? 
<laughs> uh, because it's not a movie, man. I haven't worked out my back in like two years. Wouldn't your significant <laughs> other just think it's badass if you got picked up by a helicopter in the backyard? Uh, oh, man, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, Not it's... my thing. I don't want to be the guy that gets shot at. I like my fingernails where they are. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show again. I look forward to having you on the show more often now that you have some time freed up and you're not quite so busy with everything. Um, yeah, I just I think you're a fantastic guy, man. I I love talking with you about this kind of shit because you're not just somebody pontificating about some article you read somewhere. You you put a lot of time and research and effort into this, and you know your shit. And I like people who well, are a lot smarter than I am about different things. So this is awesome. Uh, not smarter, just that's, that's my field. Um, <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate that. Um, and, and feel free to have me on for like, just, uh, you know, I don't want to say shooting the shit cause you guys got a show to run, but, um, you know, uh, oh, we'd love to have yeah, you on to just feel shoot free to call me out whenever. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not a one trick pony. I don't just do uh, white supremacy and, and Russians. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you do creepy pastas? Uh, yeah, a little bit, actually. I was having a lot of fun with that. Um, uh, Matt's, Matt's delivery was pretty good. I was very happy that he started with the uh, Russian sleep experiment. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) That was fucking Um, and then you guys telling the, uh, the, what, the two sentence horror stories the other day. Um, just, just great. Just great. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. So before we let you go, what would you like to plug anything? Tell people how they can get in contact with you if they'd like to have you on their show or talk to you more about this. Um, yeah, I will. Um, I'll make a post on the Godless Revolution, the the public facing page. Um, I'm easy to find on Twitter. I, Google my name, Taylor Grin, and you'll find a whole bunch of my shit. I'm really easy to find online. Um, you can find me at Twitter at Taylor M Grin. That's G R I N. Um, I've got a blog, tmgrin.com, uh, and it's on and off. The last couple of weeks, I haven't really done anything with it because I was doing that freelancing work, but I plan to publish like the articles and the uh, books that I'm reading to that and just kind of make it like a hub of like, here's how I know the shit I know. You get to read the same stuff that I read. Um, and then as I start producing content, um, I'll find ways to post that. I still need to figure that out. You know, I still need to figure out how visible I want my content to be until I really know what it is I'm going to produce regularly. Cause the last thing I want to do is have people be like, Oh hell yeah, I'm going to listen to this experimental podcast. And I'm like, no, this is not for me. And they're like, well, (laughs) fuck that guy. He only did three episodes. So. (laughs) Well, when you decide, I I know. Yeah. Well, when you decide I would be happy to to help promote that and everything. Cause yeah, this is, this is important shit that people should know about. Yeah, thank you. And then and, and to any listeners, um, uh, if you have questions about things, um, especially anything involving like Russian info ops, you know, the alt-right white supremacy stuff, and then um, uh, politics, political analysis, you know, a few years back, I did a show for you guys where I did a profile on Steve Bannon, you know, yeah. if anybody out there has questions to ask in those areas, um, give me a bone to chase. You know, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that kind of research for you and, and provide content that way. Uh, Cause it's fun for me. And I want to see what people want to consume, you know, just as much as as me throwing stuff out there. It's how can I help you, the viewers um, know more, 
uh, better. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for being on the show. I, I look forward to having you on the show many times in the future. It's just, I fucking love you, man. You're a great guy to talk to. Mm-hmm. You too, man. It's really great being on here again. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank Y'all you. Y'all take care. All right. Oh. You do the same, man. This is Sean McCraney, and I uh, just want to invite you to check out our website at www.hotm.tv, and we've got a bunch of information on there. One of the shows you might be interested in is Christianarchy Today. It's a weekly, really short show that we do about, uh, we tell people, if you think you know Christianity, you're probably wrong. Check out that show, and uh, you're listening to The Godless Revolution. 40%, 45% of the American people believe literally in Adam and Eve believe literally that the world is only 6,000 years old. Mm. I mean, that's a shocking figure, and mm. you can't duck out of it by saying, oh, sophisticated theologians mm-hmm. don't, don't believe it. Unfortunately, what sophisticated theologians believe isn't really relevant to what the majority of Christians do believe. If you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, corrections, criticisms, or concepts for content, contact the show via email at godlessrevolution at gmail.com, by text or voicemail at 330-81-REBEL, or Twitter the twatter at TGR Podcast. Thank you! I don't even know what I want to say here toward the end of the show. Like, I, the, the interview was just awesome. Yeah. I, I just, I really enjoy talking to Taylor, man. He's a well, what we're going to say is, we're going to have him back again. Oh, you know that. Yeah. And he's just, he's a brilliant guy. And Mm -hmm. I just, I have a really good time having conversations with him because he really knows his shit and, and, and it's fascinating, interesting things. And I like having those kinds of conversations. So, I mean, he spends his life just steeped in this stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. But that'll wrap things up for this, this evening's program. I hope you all have enjoyed it as much as I did. We're going to move into the Patreon section. Basically, we're going to be playing some uh, videos and mocking religious people. Okay. (laughs) But they're shitty religious people with shitty opinions, and they're doing harm to other people, so I feel justified in mocking them. Um, But thank you all very much for listening, and so until next week, crucify those proud boys. Leave a review to achieve your merit badge for that one thing. and rate the show five times a day toward a better understanding of your fellow human being. Oh, I'm going to have to chop this all up right at the end here, and I fucking hate when I have to do that because it takes so much time. Can we so, call you our proud boy for finishing your thesis? I Only because you're too far away for me to slap you. <laughs> Well, do it in post. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry for the times when I'm like, I don't really know how to respond to Ryan. Like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, <laughs> no, uh, you're funny, but your your humor is goofy. My humor is dry, so I, I can't I can't bounce back at you the way that you deserve. <laughs> And rate the show five times a day toward, what did I just fucking say? (laughs) It's something about being better. You should just end it with this. Leave it all in. (laughs) Just leave it all in. (laughs) Just leave it. Rate the show five times a day toward being a better person. What did I say? It was good. And rate the show five times a day towards a kinder, better future. Excellent.